Welcome to Aging Disgracefully, a weekly oddcast of seriously funny and sometimes raunchy monologues. I'm Carolyn Meyer, and I have a story for you. Stay with me for episode number 25, How to Be a Writer and Survive. kid in my teens, my father decides that I need to be able to earn a living in case I can't find a husband. He doesn't see me as having a profession, just that I might someday need to get a job. And since I don't want to be a nurse or a teacher or possibly a librarian, all of which would have been logical choices for a girl in the 1950s, I have only one other option, to be a secretary and work in an office. For that, I must learn to type. I hope he's wrong about the husband because I dream about marrying the perfect man and staying married to him forever, but I also dream about being a writer. I have no clue about how to find a husband or how to become a writer, but I do believe that knowing how to type might be useful for for the writer part of the dream, at least. I've wanted to be a a writer for as long as I can remember. I'm eight years old when I begin to write my first story, Humphrey the Caterpillar and Gladys the Snail, a true romance. It's supposed to be a love story, but I don't get past the second or third lined page on my tablet. An interspecies love story is way beyond my imaginative powers to continue. But by the time I'm in junior high, I've made progress. I'm writing stories about girls who live fascinating lives, girls who are nothing like me, growing up in families that are nothing like mine. I mail my stories to Seventeen Magazine with a stamped self-addressed envelope. An editorial assistant mails them back with a printed rejection slip. Thank you for sending this story. Unfortunately, it does not meet our needs at this time. I have no idea what the needs of Seventeen magazine are or at what future time my story might meet those needs. I don't realize that this is a standard rejection letter and that I'll see many more of them in the years to come. This is about the time the poet and short story writer Sylvia Plath submits nearly 50 pieces to Seventeen magazine before her first story does meet their needs is published in the August 1950 issue when I'm in high school and Plath is an 18-year-old college student. She later marries an English writer, has children, writes an acclaimed novel, and then at the age of 30 turns on the gas and commits suicide. I turned 15 the summer of 1950 and my father buys me a typewriter for my birthday and signs me up for lessons. I spend hours every day practicing F-R-F, F-V-F, F-J-U-R-N-J-N-J on the QWERTY keyboard. I dream that maybe someday I'll get a job as a journalist working for a newspaper. And I'll keep on writing stories. The following summer, I land my first job as a typist at radio station WKVA, the voice of the Kishikaquillis Valley in Lewistown, Pennsylvania. 
The boss, Mr. Metzger, hires me to type copies of the advertising commercials that are required by the Federal Communications Commission. Government stuff, it sounds important. Three hours a day, 50 cents an hour, minimum wage. After a couple of weeks, Mr. Metzger tears some ads out of the daily newspaper. Wolf Furniture Company's sale on bedroom sets. Kaufman Hardware's 4th of July special on lawnmowers. Mr. Metzger tells me to take a crack at writing some commercials, not just typing them, and I do. Don't wait, hurry in today for incredible savings. I describe the fine workmanship of the dressers and nightstands, point out how easy the lawnmower is to push, make a big deal of the amazingly low sales prices and the limited time only these prices will be in effect. All in exactly one minute. Mike Miller, the announcer, reads my commercials on the air. Mike is 10 years older than I, and I have a crush on him. <laughs> National news comes in on the teletype machine. Mr. Metzger covers local news, and Mike Miller handles sports. Miss Rita McCoy, an old lady in her 50s, has a daily good news program reporting birthdays, anniversaries, and other happy events. In August, when Miss McCoy goes on vacation for two weeks, Mr. Metzger tells me to take her place. I'm going to be on the air. Just before noon, I step into the studio, wait for the on-air light to come on, and read off the good news of the arrival of Mr. and Mrs. Harvey Kerstetter's new baby, weighing seven pounds, three ounces, Gus and Ethel McCracken's 25th wedding anniversary, the visit of Darlene Snyder's cousin from Buffalo, New York. During my senior year in high school, I'm the editor of the class yearbook and associate editor of the school newspaper, and by the time I graduate, my dreams have grown much bigger. My ambition now is focused on being a writer for CBS television. Most people I know in Lewistown don't even have a TV set yet. The voice of the Kishikaquillas Valley welcomes me back for another summer. I write more ads, report more birthdays, anniversaries, and at the end of my freshman year in college, my friends are getting jobs as waitresses at the Jersey Shore. I tell Mr. Metzger that I'll be gathering life experience. My friend Peggy, who is two years ahead of me in college, gets me an interview for a job in a little restaurant on the boardwalk in Ocean City, New Jersey. That's where she works. But I have zero life experience waiting tables. Arm service, says the cook, a giant in a greasy apron. And I nod like I know what he's talking about. And I'm hired. I'm to start the next morning. Peggy explains it later. You don't carry the dishes on a tray. You balance the plates on your forearms, plus a, another couple of dishes in each hand. I borrow one of Peggy's uniforms and show up for work. My parents are my first customers. They come in for breakfast before they start the drive back to Lewistown. I pour their coffee and write their orders on a little green pad. Back in the kitchen, the cook loads my arms with large plates of eggs, bacon, and fried potatoes, and smaller plates of buttered toast. My arms are full, and I back through the swinging door and lurch across the dining room. Just as I arrive at my parents' table, the plates come unbalanced. 
Only one goes down, but that's enough. I quit, or maybe I'm fired, and, and teary-eyed, I ride back to Lewistown with my parents. I dread asking Mr. Metzger for my old job back, but I don't have to. A new radio station has just opened in a farming community a dozen miles away, and I get a job there. Every morning, I borrow my mother's Chevy and drive us to a cement block building surrounded by fields of alfalfa. WJUN, the voice of the Juniata Valley, features livestock reports interspersed with hillbilly music, and my job is to write ads for egg washers and manure spreaders and other things that farmers need. The pay is still 50 cents an hour. The summer after that, I decide to enroll in a stenography course to learn shorthand, all those lines and squiggles that represent syllables, in order to take dictation of business letters. This skill will qualify me to be a secretary, a step up from being a typist. Meanwhile, in college, as an English major, I sign up for all the writing classes. Professor Mildred Martin, with her untucked shirt and smudged eyeglasses, teaches writing the short story. She is not impressed by my efforts. Slight but pleasant, she notes on one story and gives me an A minus, meaning that my grammar and punctuation are above reproach, but I do not know how to tell a story. By the end of the course, it's clear that she does not believe I show any promise as a writer. After graduation, I head to New York, still clinging to my dream of becoming a writer for television, where maybe I won't have to tell a story. But nobody cares that I graduated Phi Beta Kappa with honors in English. Nobody cares that I created advertisements for lawnmowers and manure spreaders. Instead, I am given tests to see how fast I can take shorthand, how accurately I can type. And I'm hired as a secretary at CBS Television Advertising Sales. My boss's job is to sell television time to advertisers like Maxwell House Coffee and Ivory Soap. He dictates sales letters, which I take down in shorthand and then type them. After a couple of months, he tells me to go ahead and write the letters myself and you'll sign them. I wish I could trade places with Leon, the goofy looking guy from the mailroom who makes his rounds past my desk twice a day. He's on a career path. Someday Leon might actually be doing something besides dropping off mail and picking up letters from board secretaries. I will never do anything but type letters about buying advertising time for Alka-Seltzer. It's a dead end. But within a couple of years, I find a husband, quit my mindless job, have a baby, and then I get divorced, just as my father feared might happen. And I get another job as a secretary, find another husband, have another baby. I hire a teenager to play with my older son while the baby sleeps. And then I start to write. I write short stories for the New Yorker. But the editor doesn't seem to understand that these are obviously New Yorker material. And the stories are rejected one after another, just as Seventeen Magazine did 10 years earlier.
I learn that rejection is the norm. I worry that slight but pleasant might be my norm. I submit a story to a magazine called Today's Secretary. My story is accepted and published in shorthand. All those lines and squiggles that I learned in summer school. I've been published in translation and I am paid $25. I keep writing articles that sell to obscure magazines. I write a novel, nobody wants to publish it, but miraculously, I get a literary agent who suggests that I try writing a children's book. I have another baby, my third boy, and I write a sewing book for little girls, Miss Patches Learn to Sew Books. And it sells. A book club picks it up. I write a piece for my church newsletter. The editor of a major women's magazine reads it and asks me to write a monthly column about children's books for the magazine. I write more how-to books for kids on baking bread and making candy, on knitting and embroidery. I write books about coconuts and cheese, a book called Being Beautiful, the Story of Cosmetics. There's even a book on rock tumbling. I'm recruited as an instructor for a correspondence course aimed at people who want to write for children. Eager students work their way through a dozen assignments, beginning with a story based on one of three illustrations. The first picture shows Mother Rabbit in a dress and apron taking a pie out of the oven while Father Rabbit sits in a rocking chair reading a newspaper and a rabbit boy lurks outside a window where a pie cools on the windowsill. That's sketch number one. The second sketch is a young boy on a raft waving at someone on shore. And the third sketch is a drawing of two teenagers, a boy and girl with suitcases. The question is, is the kid on the raft calling for his friends to come out and join him? Or is he yelling for help? Are the teenagers on their way to visit grandma? Or are they a couple of delinquents running away from home? And is that rabbit boy going to steal the pie? The stories are like Rorschach tests. Once a week, the correspondence school sends me a batch of student assignments, 30 or more at a time. Are you surprised to hear that eight out of 10 students have chosen to write about the rabbit family for their first assignment? I read each story, jotting notes in the margin, and then I type a detailed letter to the student offering suggestions and adding enough praise to keep the student enrolled for the next 11 assignments. I'm paid for each assignment I correct, each letter I write. One summer, I hole up at a writer's colony in Taos, New Mexico, hoping to work on another novel, but I'm inundated with rabbit stories. I recruit Richard, another writer at the colony, to help me with the fucking bunnies, as we come to call these stories. Richard writes the editorial letter, and I sign my name. I work for the correspondence school for more than 10 years. It's the fucking bunnies that pay the bills while I write books, until I've finally had enough bunnies, more than enough. As the years roll by, I move on to writing about real people. 
the Amish of Pennsylvania, the Yupik Eskimos of Alaska, the ancient Maya of Mexico. I travel to South Africa, Northern Ireland, Japan, and I write about the lives of young people in those countries. I go back to writing fiction, not short stories, to hell with a New Yorker, but novels for teenagers based on historical events and people who fascinate me. Bloody Mary, Marie Antoinette, Queen Victoria, Charles Darwin, Georgia O'Keeffe. And then, after more than half a century of writing, with 60 published books on my shelf, I sign up for a class in improv comedy, just to try something new. And one thing leads to another. And within a year, I reinvent myself as a comedian and storyteller. Ah, sometimes a pretty raunchy one. <laughs> I guarantee this is not what my father had in mind for me when he insisted that I learn to type in case I couldn't find a husband or keep one. And God knows I've had troubles enough on that score. Finding true love has turned out to be even more challenging and more elusive than getting a book published. <laughs> but no matter how it turns out, I always do manage to find a good story to tell. You can read this and other stories on my blog at funnycarolyn.com, watch the video on YouTube, and come back next week for episode number 26, My Undocumented Affair with a Famous Writer. I'm Carolyn Meyer, and I'm aging disgracefully. Thank you.